Welcome to the Social Ideas Podcast, brought to you by the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation. This series looks through the lens of those striving for a better world. I'm Pam Mungru. Now, are social innovation and the military compatible? That's the question that I posed to Professor Bill DeMarco, Colonel of the US Air Force, retired. Bill is also the Chief of Innovation Development for the Air University in Alabama. With around 500 students on site and thousands more who complete AUIX's online programs, the university works to deliver, amongst many other skills, leadership and innovation. Bill and I discussed how social innovation is finding its way into the US Air Force. Yeah, so one of the, you know, in AUIX, we, we have lines of innovation, if you will. So um, what we call dot mil PF is stuff. That's just things. Like I mentioned that material handling equipment, that's a thing. We have a lot of events. Like we have this thing called LEDX, which we, we hosted uh, Neil Stott uh, from Cambridge this year. Uh, we're doing another event in May with three Cambridge professors around social innovation. We have education innovation. And then we have this idea of social innovation. And, you know, you think in terms of the military, um, it, it does seem a bit odd. Uh, as a leadership chair, one of the things that that we noticed early on, we had issues with PTSD in the college. Uh, it looked different, you know, for different people because that, that's the way it is. Some were obvious and some were not. And we started a program working with some of our mental health specialists on creating a environment where people felt safe to talk about their issues. As you might imagine, the military, uh, the mindset is I have no issues. I'm, you know, I'm a machine. Basically, I get stuff done. I do what I'm supposed to do when I'm supposed to do it. And living that way for, you know, in the case of our students at, you know, it's about a decade and a half, you can start to show wear and tear on individuals. So we set up a program with one of our doctors and she would just have a, a, a random office in the staff college that she would set up shop. And she had such a lovely personality that you just wanted to talk to her. And so people would just come by and, and sit and talk to her. And it got so popular that we actually had to move it across from the school into the basement of one of the chapels. And, and the idea was we didn't want to label it mental health or anything else because that that stigma. Uh, so that, that that's one example, I would say, of things we can do with social innovation. We found out it wasn't just PTSD either. We had issues with inadequacy. Like I mentioned, it's an elite school. So the top 15% or so of a year group will come here. Well, if you think about it, being told you're in the top 15%, you're the number one this, the number two this, you come to a school like this and you're surrounded by all the number ones and the number twos. And people start wondering, do I really belong here? That was an issue we saw. Um, another issue we saw was relationships. You know, let's say that somebody had been deployed for a year, they come home and they move to a school and they start realizing maybe they have issues with their spouse. Uh, so it was interesting to see the things that we started uh, to notice from a mental health perspective with a bunch of our, our students. And, and I'd like to think that we were helpful there. What's risen up more recently, I think, for us is we, as in the Air Universities at Maxwell Air Force Base in Montgomery, Alabama. Montgomery, uh, as our former mayor used to say, is the birthplace of civil aviation because the Wright brothers had their first flying school here. The birthplace of the Civil War, the order to fire the first shots of the Civil War was given from the White House of the Confederacy, which was located in Montgomery, Alabama, but also the birthplace of civil rights. So you start looking at these things, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, started preaching here at a church, which is right down the street from where I work. Um, Rosa Parks with the Montgomery bus boycott started it 
half a block, maybe a hundred yards from the office I work in. Um, there's a fountain in the middle of the street that at one place was a, a stand where they used to trade slaves. So all of this exists right where we work every day. So you can start seeing that there's an issue between the base and the community. And an issue might be almost too harsh, but there's almost a gap, if you will, between the community and the base. So one of the things we're working now is figuring out how do we close that gap? How do we make the base something that's more of a valued partner to the community? And we are because the base brings um, money, but there's so much more than money that can be done here. So I keep saying that my office, it's not my office, it's an office we, we share with the Innovation Hub and AUIX, which like I said, is about eight people. So my office might sound rather old, but I'm saying we work downtown now. So we've actually come off base, put ourselves downtown. You know, we have two folks we work with, uh, Geneva and Rashim, and they're community organizers, if you will. And Rashim is a former Air Force officer, but he's connected downtown in ways that I would never be. So this last year, when we did LEDX, which stands for Leadership, Education, and Developmental Experience, we did it around social innovation, and we did it downtown. So we went to the Davis Theater, which is a kind of prominent landmark downtown, and we opened it there. And then the folks rotated between the Davis Theater, Rosa Parks uh, Museum, uh, the Crest Building, which is an old department store where Rosa Parks used to work, and MGM Works, which is our innovation hub. So we had people rotate between there, and we had, I would like to think, we had some difficult conversations. Uh, we had Dr. Velda Harris-Montgomery. Her father was a really... We think Martin Luther King Jr. when we think civil rights movement, but her father was kind of the man behind the scenes of the civil rights movement. And she was our keynote speaker. And when she came into the Davis Theater and she sat on the stage and she kind of smiled and said, uh, it's interesting that I'm sitting here because, and I can't remember the year, the date, the, but she announced the date, the year. She said, I sat right there and she pointed at a chair and she said, I came to this theater because it was the first day that colored people were allowed in the theater. I don't remember what movie I saw. I just knew that on this day, I was gonna to go to the Davis Theater. And she talked about what it was like um, to be a black woman, to sit there in this theater and have people throw soda at her and candy and things like that. I mean, that happened right here in Montgomery. And it seems like it was so long ago. How do we connect our officers? Like I said, all these people, these international officers, everybody, to what's happened in downtown Montgomery to begin these difficult conversations. Uh, just yesterday, we had a group from the Pentagon uh, that came to talk with us about diversity and inclusion. And, um, you know, we mentioned to them that, have you ever thought about having the annual diversity and inclusion conference in Montgomery? And they said, no, but that's a great idea. So how do we start bringing these historic examples to the forefront that then will lead to difficult conversations? We have uh, Captain Ebony Luna, and she does a, a tour downtown. She's a Tuskegee University graduate. And she does a tour where she walks people around downtown and talks about what happened in all these places to generate those conversations. So in a way, that's kind of our latest initiative, I'd say, in the social innovation space, is how do we address, I think elephant in the room might, might be too strong, but I kind of feel like that works right now. How do we address that elephant in the room that we know we need to talk about that's difficult to talk about? What's interesting, I mean, as we both know, one of the aspects of social innovation is dismantling systemic injustices. 
And the military, by the way, anywhere in the world, is not on its own in having issues around systemic injustice. So being where you are in Montgomery, doing what you're doing in terms of social innovation, not only with your team, but with the, the people that you are teaching through your university, and now the work that you're trying to do with the community, what would be a marker of success in the first steps of dismantling systemic injustice through the work that you're doing, but also connecting with people and saying, listen, we're here with you, not against you or apart from you? Yeah, it's it's a it's a great question. And it's something that we ponder often. I think it begins with education, which might sound kind of like a blinding flash of the obvious, but I'm not sure that's happening because there's been lines drawn that people sometimes feel like are difficult to cross. So one of the things that we did when uh, when Neil Stott was here was Neil wanted to talk with black church leaders and then local business owners. So Geneva and Rashim brought together uh, groups that, I mean, I've lived here now since 2012, groups that I have never talked to, had conversations that were um, enlightening is the best word I can, I can think of. With the church leaders, there was one pastor, and she said that the military has become antisocial. And, you know, you hear that and you kind of think, well, no, we're not. You listen to her story and then you think, oh, we are. And and why is that? And, you know, a lot of times you could say our students are only here for 11 months. So they show up and really they're gone. I mean, it sounds 11 months is a long time. It's not. So is it the students don't want to build roots in the community? Is it the fact that we've been at war for two decades and the idea is that people deploy and come home and deploy and come home and now they come here for 11 months and they know they're not going to deploy. So they're more concerned with building that relationship with family and friends than they are with the community. I don't have a good answer, but it's something I think for Neil and I that we want to continue trying to understand, because I think if we had that conversation with the military, they would be shocked and they would say, what can we do to change that? So one of the things that we're having conversations now with the uh, staff college is what would it look like? And I'm not saying this is going to be done, but it, it looks like it's a possibility, a, a good possibility. There's 40 seminars at the staff college. So that's about 12 students per seminar. What would it look like if those seminars were to adopt a class at a local school? Let's say the seventh grade at Valiant Cross, which is a, a Christian a school downtown Montgomery that serves sort of the underserved, if you will. What would that look like? I think it would be powerful. I think it'd be powerful for the kids and powerful for our students to connect with the community in that way. So these are things that we're beginning to have conversations on, but we wouldn't have known it had we not had that conversation. Another conversation that I had no idea of, again, I grew up in San Francisco, California. That's not better or worse. It's just different. So after World War II, there was this thing with the, you know, the GI Bill in the United States, which was a way to pay for returning veterans to go to college, but also a way to get business loans to start business because we had all the returning you know, veterans. And the idea was to how do we boost the economy? There were certain states that made it very, very difficult for Black veterans to access those funds. I did not know that was an issue. So after that conversation, of course, with my massive research and Googling skills, I looked it up. And it is very true. So in a way, what did we do by either 
continuing or setting back Montgomery when we wouldn't allow that to happen. And and again, I can't fix that. That happened long before I was even born. But is there a way that we can help local businesses in the innovation space? And, you know, as a military person, I can't say that I would choose this business over that business, you know, because there's a lot of rules and the rules are there for a good reason. But if I could work, let's say, with a contractor because I'm building a new classroom and he happens to be here in Montgomery and we have a relationship, I mean, maybe we can help boost business. I, I don't know. But these are things that we're exploring also as we step out in the innovation space, in the creative space, the material handling equipment. Uh, that I mentioned that we're working on. It's called Hulk, of course, because I love superheroes, but it stands for um, Heavy Utility Lift Kit. That was built at Auburn University using undergraduate students. And I'd read a paper by a captain. So, you know, he had, let's say, six years in service. And he wrote a paper about how are we going to do this in a conflict where we don't have this sort of equipment. I'd read it and I happened to be visiting Auburn and looking at one of their laboratories. And I said, could you build this? And they said, absolutely. And we just worked with undergraduates. And, and I won't tell you how much it cost, but it was pennies compared to if we went out and did this through a defense contractor. And uh, we just did our beta test last Friday. It works. It needs some work, of course. But I mean, the system works. And so now we can start to modify the system. And we have interest from all across the Air Force. We put a video on LinkedIn and we got all kinds of businesses saying, oh, yeah, we can help you with that. We want to do this. We want to do that. So that stimulated, I mean, in a way, the local economy via students. In fact, we have one local company that says, I can build one better. In fact, it looks like a droid from Star Wars. And as a Star Wars fan, I definitely want that to happen. We all live for that. I want my own R2-D2. How do you bring what is the purpose of the military in all of its forms and the purpose of social innovation and make them work? Because one is about doing something by force and the other clearly is not. So I get what you're saying. You know, if you think about what is the military's job, um, I think a lot of people think the military's job is to, you know, break things and kill people. Um, but there's a side of the military that also is deterrent. There's a side of the military that actually is supposed to be so strong that we don't have to fight. Um, and you start looking around the world right now. I mean, I, I think about Ukraine as an example. The Ukrainian conflict is something in my mind was not supposed to happen, right? Because the idea of these militaries, you know, that we're, we're not going to see one military attack a sovereign country and say, it's now mine. Um, maybe I was ignorant, but some of us, I think, thought we were past that point in history. I don't know if we'll ever get past it. It happened. So if you think about foes or adversaries that are big and powerful? How do we not fight? I look at the United States and I, I think that, and I only can speak to the US only because I, as an American, that's that, and I'm in the American military. I think one of our greatest strengths is our diversity. Our country has always been a bit of a melding pot from all over the world. People come here with unique skill sets. That diversity to me is, is a key to deterrence. Because we all think differently. There's this idea of cognitive diversity, um, you know, and we got racial diversity. We, I mean, it just goes on and on. The list, I mean, it's religious, spiritual. That is a strength. The fact is we don't think the same. Um, my concern is if we start all thinking the same. So I kind of look at my job in the military is to take the spoon and stir the pot. 
to keep that pot stirring so we understand that we need diversity. If you looked at our team, we have a very diverse team. One of my concerns, honestly, I mean, if this is audio, you can't see my face, uh, but I, I'm I'm an older gentleman, if you will. I have a very gray and white beard. I mean, I've been doing this for a long time. And then we tend to be uh, attracted or maybe gravitate towards people like us. So then I would gravitate towards other retired military officers who might happen to be Caucasian. Um, that's, that's not a good place to be. Um, so what I've done intentionally is started with generational diversity. Uh, we have interns, college students that work for us, and they know that they've got complete permission to challenge any one of us on the team. And they do. Uh, we have one who's a cadet and we have three who are not cadets. They're not joining the military. So again, to your point, they don't even think about the military, but they have a position now where they can help. We've got businesswoman. She's never been in the military. I've got Geneva and Rashim. Rashim actually has. He was a six-year, I believe six-year, maybe eight-year captain when he got out. Geneva's never served. Both uh, are here in Montgomery. Uh, Rashim is a local Ebony is a local. Uh, she's a captain in the Air Force. She actually was a nuclear missile officer. So the idea of how do I take what you're saying, the idea of the military is designed to do this mission and combine that with people that don't do that mission to have dialogue, to have conflict. And the other thing about conflict, and this is interesting, is I believe that conflict creates friction. Friction creates energy. How do we use that energy towards good? I always say towards greater good. That was the idea, I think, with Neil and I having conversations with people that we normally would never have conversations with. We were not there to judge whether that was right or wrong. We were there to learn. And I'm still processing all the things that I learned. And that happened in October. Or you could just say that I'm a bit slow. But I mean, I'm I'm just thinking through these things now to figure out how do we build that into what we're doing through social innovation. You know, Neil talks a lot about, you know, the military might go and break things, and then it has to fix things. I agree 100%. I have more time as a military officer in humanitarian relief than I do in combat. And a lot of people think that's odd, but I, I worked the Rwanda conflict. I, I've worked in Yugoslavia. I've worked uh, the tsunami in the Pacific, the earthquake in Haiti, the hurricanes, uh, Katrina and Rita hit the United States. So, I mean, I've spent a lot of time in that humanitarian world as well, you know, I didn't fly a combat aircraft. I, I flew a giant transport and I flew a big tanker. I spent a lot of time doing airbase openings. So example, a tsunami rolls through Jakarta. The idea is how do you start bringing supplies in when the runways are destroyed? Well, you need somebody to go in there that understands air power to actually be able to open the runways to bring relief in to people that are suffering. So there's another side to the military. I'm not sure everybody understands, but in the military, we don't get to pick what side you know you have to be prepared for both the yin and the yang you've spoken about a bit about your own experience there and and you've spoken rightly about you know the, the different facets of the military it is all too easy to see things as binary it's one or the other and life obviously is far more nuanced than that taking that nuance of the military and social innovation and teaching that in your leadership courses and your leadership school, how do you teach it? How do you sort of take that nuance and say, this is how you can break down the systemic injustice. This is how you can challenge yourself. This is how you can see the good that you're doing in the world. So, and this might be, not be the perfect answer, but it's the way that I kind of look at this. 
sometimes when we use the word diversity, I think that riles certain people up and they think like, you know, use the word systemic. And I think that's a great word um, because systemic means there's a problem in the system. And I agree. And in the U.S., we, we have systemic problems. It took me a while to realize that. It took me a while to realize what does systemic even mean? But if you think about the history of the United States, I mean, it might not be a stretch to say a lot of the United States was founded on slavery. I mean, there were slaves that were used to build the country. How is that not a problem in our system? It still is in the system. The system has not been purged of that. And I'm not saying that's a person's fault. It's in the system. So how do we get people to understand that? But what we start with, honestly, is cognitive diversity, that we're all different. I don't I don't care with your skin color, your gender, your, your orientations. I don't care about any of those. We're all different. So let's start understanding our differences. And so we use things like a, a system called Competing Values Framework, Cameron Quinn and DeGraff developed. We use things like Jungian typology. And I understand that those models are not perfect. I mean, there's a great quote by George Box that says, all models are wrong, but some are useful. So I always tell our students, take what's useful, throw the rest out. But when we start looking at these, the intent is not to put somebody in a box and say, you are a ENTJ or you are blue or you are a pioneering type. I mean, no, but I want the people in the room to realize that person across the room that might really irritate you might only do it because that's how they are. It's the way they're wired. It's And they don't intend to do that. But you might do the same to them that they're doing to you. So let's talk about that. Why is that the case? So if we start with that premise, then we have the ability to work into other places. Um, Ebony, and, and I should have thought to have Ebony or, or Geneva or somebody dial in on this. Maybe we do another conversation with one of them. But Ebony... Uh, as a black female officer in the U.S. Air Force in charge of nuclear missiles, um, you know, she talks about walking around downtown Montgomery with captains and talking about these different places she stops. And she had an officer ask her, um, I, I assume a Caucasian officer, she didn't say that, ask her if she would talk about equal opportunity, affirmative action. And do you think that really works? And she laughed and said, no, I won't. And she said, but I think you should. And he was very cautious because he wasn't sure how to bring that up. And she waited to the end of the of the day and then said, well, I think John has a question. John, why don't you bring it up? And he was super nervous to bring it up. Um, he didn't feel safe. He didn't think it was something he could talk about. But he did. And she said, you could have heard a pin drop. Nobody wanted to talk about it. And then once a couple of people started talking about it, the conversation just kind of took off. And it was really good conversation from African-Americans, Mexican-Americans, Greek-Americans. I mean, all kinds of people that were talking about whether they felt this was good or bad. And those conversations, I think, are what get to the systemic problems. When people can talk about the problem in the system, then we can come up with solutions to the problem in the system. And I'm not sure that we're ever going to get to perfection. I, I think about that idea of you know pushing the boulder up the hill, the Sisyphus. You push it up and it rolls back down. But I think if we push it up and then we can put a ledge underneath it, you know, that might look like, oh, I don't know, standardization or conversation, and it will stop the boulder from rolling downhill. Then let's push it up the hill some more. We know we're never going to get to perfection because we're humans. And, and man, I don't know. I don't know about you, but I know about me. I've got a lot of issues. I mean, and so, so if I can't fix all my own personal issues, I know I can't fix society's issues, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to have conversations and be better.
And how do those conversations then spill out to the wider community, do you think? We're starting to get there. Um, I think LEDX SI was the first way of, of having that. I know I've been invited uh, to speak at places now that I wasn't invited to speak at before. And I don't think it was, it wasn't because they didn't want me to speak. It was just maybe they didn't know, you know, and, and so now how do we invite people to come speak with us? You know, it's a slow process to break down barriers. And what I, what I fear a little bit sometimes is I know, I know me, I'm, I'm a bit of a bull in a China shop sometimes. And people laugh about that. But if, if they know me, they understand that my heart is not, if I break to China, I didn't mean to, I mean, it was just like, I was trying to get stuff done. And that's, that's a problem sometimes. And I worry as we step into these new and sort of untried areas that I might do that. And it's something I think about. Most people understand that I'll say something or I'll do something. They can come tell me, I will try to correct it. But I feel like we need to be bold as we step into that space. But at the same time, we need to be sensitive and empathetic. So that's why I have people, like I keep going back to the team, people like, um, you know, Jody Womack, uh, Ebony, uh, Rashim, Geneva, TJ. I mean, people that are different than me that can warn me. And, and usually Geneva and Ebony don't have a problem telling me, Bill, you said that. We had a situation, honestly, I didn't even see it. And I won't go into the details because it used to be boring. But the bottom line was, Geneva looked at me and said, that looks a lot like white privilege. And I'm like, what does that even mean? And then she explained it to me and I was like, oh my word, I never intended for that to be anything that was it was perceived to be. But if somebody doesn't tell me that looks like white privilege, I will never know it. And I won't be able to work through it or I won't be able to have the conversation, if that makes sense. That was Professor Bill DeMarco, Colonel U.S. Air Force retired, Chief of Innovation Development for the Air University, and also Fellow for the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation. You can find out more about the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation and also how to apply for the Masters in Social Innovation by following us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter and YouTube.